Good morning, everybody. How's everybody feeling after that U of M loss last night? Got a couple of grades. <laughs> I was like, the mood might be a little depressive this morning. I wasn't sure what to expect. It's good to see you guys. I'm Emily. I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're in the uh, third sermon in our recent sermon renewal series, and we're using Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone, as our inspiration. Doesn't have a great title. Um, I know as I've been reading through this book, I've been personally getting quite a bit out of it. You know, I've recognized that after my, my kind of personal trauma a few years ago, that there's some ways where it's like kind of kept me or hindered me from being fully myself in certain circles because of different fears or different things. As I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, there's some different things that I'm working on. So I would just encourage you that if that book or if this sermon series is whetting your appetite at all, that maybe just pick up that book because it's a really easy read and it's got so much in it. But before we delve into that, I do want to give a little bit of a, a word about membership. So those of you who've been around, you know that we operate here at Blue Ocean Faith on a one-year renewal membership, meaning everybody ups their membership every single year. And as part of that, we ask people to make tithe pledges. Now, I want to just state up front, it's always uncomfortable to talk about money, isn't it? Um, but I thought, some, somebody um, asked me about it this week, and I thought, this is worth addressing, I think, from the pulpit. Um, a good friend just said, well, you know, why do we do tithe pledges? That just seems like a weird thing. And what I answered him is like, it's just simply practical for us. You know, that we're a smaller church, we're a newer church, we still don't have a really long track record of being able to sort of anticipate how giving is going to go. And so it's hard for us to accurately guess how to create a budget. And so we're actually in the midst of creating our budget for the 2018 year. And we've been in a little bit of a sluggishness in our giving, which may well even out by the end of the year, but we're not sure. And so we're looking at different places where we might potentially just have to make a few cuts. And so what we want to do is just take the information as people re-up their membership, compare it to a couple of the other years that we've done this, and just see what that looks like. And we'll take that into consideration for the input as we present a, a budget for the congregation to eventually vote on in December. So it's just practically helpful to us. I would just encourage you to give generously. And I say that not just to somebody who benefits from this, but Rachel and I, we tithe 10%, and we do that because we deeply believe in the vision and the mission of this church and what we're doing. You know, just this last week, I got an email from somebody who lives in, oh, I think she's up in Vancouver, Canada. And she sent me this lovely email just saying, I just so wish that there was a church like yours here in Canada, out where we're at in British Columbia. She's like, I watch online, I read the things that you're doing, and I just want you guys to know how much I appreciate being like part of your extended family that's in other parts of the world. And I know that many of the serendipity doodah moms who are watching us online, these are, there are a bunch of moms, there's about 212 of them now who have LGBTQ kids, who some of them are watching us online. A couple of them actually became members this week. So they're actually becoming part of our extended church family. Um, they just really appreciate that they've found a place where they can worship and be part of a family, even if it's you know, digitally connected. So I like to give two tips when I talk about giving. One is never go into credit card debt. I think that's worth saying because some people have had really weird experiences with different churches. Never go into credit card debt to give to the church or to any nonprofit. And also, please don't feel like people are going to be mad at you if you can't give. And that we all know that life circumstances um, 
you know, have limit what we can do. I've been there myself in the past. Nobody on the staff or the board is like looking at your stuff like, oh, look at that. Right, so nobody's mad at you. I just want to say, if you are blessed with more, I'd encourage you to give more. So if you haven't filled out that membership letter, we've got a membership letter back there. You can just turn it over. I filled out mine this morning, and Rachel filled out hers. If you're a couple, you each fill one out, and you can just leave it on the back table. There's also membership booklets there as well. So that's enough with the nuts and bolts. I know some of you like dread the membership talk every single year, but it's really helpful to us. So we're going into Brene Brown's book here, and in her book, she's trying to help us come up with different ways or strategies that we can feel better connected to people in a way that um, helps us not feel so alone when we're in groups or in different communities of people. And the title of this particular chapter, I'll amend it a little bit, is Speaking Truth to BS. She uses the real word, be civil. Speak truth to BS and be civil. Now, many of you guys know that Many years ago, I worked in public relations for a Fortune 500 company. I was working for Borders Group, Inc., which at the time was, you know, the big, large Borders Books and Music. Their headquarters was here in Ann Arbor. That feels like a lifetime ago to me now. It was like 15 years ago, but part of my responsibility was to handle media inquiries. And one of my specific areas of responsibility was media inquiries for, like, new stores. Right, so real estate, new stores. So, like, if a Borders store, say, opened up in Chicago, and there was a Chicago newspaper, they might call up and just be like, can you give us some of the details of the lease or the sale? How many jobs are you bringing? When are you opening? All that sort of mundane stuff. But on occasion, we would get a reporter or two who would call up with what the company might call hostile questions. And these would be questions about whether the presence of a major bookstore chain you know, might hurt local bookstores. And so they would ask me things like, do you know how many independent bookstores across the country have closed because of border store openings? Or have you heard about such and such bookstore in another part of Chicago that, you know, had to shut down because the borders opened across the street from it? And how do I think that this new store might affect the sales of nearby local beloved stores? And so the answer that I was told to give reporters when they approached me with questions like that was and I can still rattle it off today, 15 years later. Well, border stores coexist with independent bookstores all across the country. In fact, sometimes when we move in, local stores benefit from some increased foot traffic right here in Ann Arbor. Our very own bookstore in downtown where our headquarters is, Shaman Drum, a local bookstore across the street, increased its footprint as soon as we went and blah, 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 you know. And we all know Shaman Drum's now out of business as well. <laughs> and all of this is technically true. You know, it's technically true. Borders did coexist with some indie bookstores. And yeah, a couple of those stores did increase some foot traffic. The essence of what I was saying was BS. It was total BS. And some part of me knew it. And eventually I decided, my, my conscience was kind of niggling me. I went and I looked up the statistics. And it turned out that at that time, this was just in the early 2000s, I looked at it, more than half of all of the indie bookstores across the country, thousands in number, had closed in the years following the explosion of Borders and Barnes and & Noble as soon as they went public. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think is arguable. I think there's people with, with things to say on both sides. But I thought to deny any correlation was a little bit shady. You know, and I would tell myself, but technically I'm not denying it. I'm, I'm just highlighting where things worked well for all parties involved. 
You know, but after I looked up those stats and I knew definitively, I started to feel like I was lying. You know, and that was to the point where eventually I left that job because I, I just I felt a little bit weird about some of the things that I was being asked to do. And so Brene Brown, she talks about how, she says, while lying is a deliberate defiance of the truth, BSing is a total and complete dismissal of the truth. Let that sit. Lying is a deliberate defiance of the truth. You know, and once I knew the stats, I was defying and denying the truth. It was almost easier to not know, because before I knew the stats, I was just dismissing it, right? It didn't really matter. It felt like it could be true. So maybe it was. So if we ignore the facts, then we don't have to deal with our own lying. We just say what we think should be or could be true. You know, it's like when some politicians talk about, like, fake news. You know, there's so much BSing going on in our national conversation where there are no facts underlining different things. And the facts don't really matter because it's better for them to not seek the facts, right? Even if there was like a, a quantitative, objectable, not objectable, objective study showing which news organizations run made-up stories and which ones don't, it doesn't really matter to the people who are saying it. As long as it feels true, then people will act like it is true. But Brene Brown talks about how being dismissive of facts for emotional appeal is just manipulation. Right? Just being dismissive of, of facts for emotional appeal is manipulation. And she says BSing is harmful because when we rely solely on an emotional appeal to communicate, we're actually just using conversational frameworks that don't create connection. And I know I've done my share of that over the years. I hope I haven't done it from the pulpit, but I know I've done it in like political arguing arena. A few years back, I remember getting into a Facebook argument with someone, and I know those are like super productive, right? <laughs> I've since kind of stopped that, but um, it was about the amount of like Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare debt and what that would create. I don't really care where people fall on the issue, just for the example. That person I was arguing with was expressing like really sincere concern with how much of our national budget was going to be um, consuming because of these programs in 25 to 50 years. And the person that I was um, dialoguing with, I thought I knew I was talking what I was talking about. And I was also making a few assumptions about that person that I was dialoguing with. And so of course I wrote back with, you know, an entire long diatribe about how if we would just cut budgets X, Y, and Z, and you know, especially Z, because arguably it consumes more than 45% of our national budget, you know, at least directly or indirectly, well, then we wouldn't have this problem. And that person wrote me back politely with links to statistics highlighting that I really had no idea the scale of the problem. And he was right. I, I was totally making things up based on what I felt should be or could be right and based on what I assumed he valued and what he would be unwilling to cut back on and based on what I had heard other people in my quote-unquote tribe say. I was totally BSing to try and get him and the people he was arguing with to agree with me. And I will admit this is probably one of the only times that a Facebook debate has changed somebody's mind. But him calling me out really politely and inviting me to consider some more information actually created some connection between us that was based on accepted data. It was actually based on facts. And I thought we might still disagree about how to tackle the issue, but now at least there's like a common ground. We're working with some common numbers. And it's kind of that lack of agreed facts in our community 
and in our national discourse in particular that's been really difficult to navigate. Because it's hard to have a conversation with someone when there are some things that are just sort of made up and used for emotional purposes. And so I actually felt grateful to this man for calling out my BS with civility. He was kind about it so I could hear him and that helped me think a little bit more critically. Now, Brene Brown, she talks about how in our culture, it seems like we feel a, um, a lot of pressure to know things about everything. You know, there's so much pressure to have an opinion about such a broad array of things because we have so much access to information via the internet. And yet there is absolutely no possible way that everyone can have informed decisions or informed opinions about the variety of topics that so many of us pretend to understand. And that is me included. I can't think of that many conversations I've had over the last few years where I'm like, yeah, I don't really know. I always chime in. And there's shame. <laughs> there's a little shame in our culture, I think, associated with saying, I don't know that much about that. Could you tell me more? And I would say that's true, especially in regards to things that we think that we should know or that people you know, might reasonably expect us to know. So say you're a parent and you're in conversation with other parents saying something like, you know, I don't actually know that much about effectively disciplining my five-year-old. Could you tell me more? Like saying that to somebody who's not like a close friend, that would feel really vulnerable. Or saying to someone, look, I, I don't actually know that much about the history of race relations in America. Could you tell me more? Might make you feel like, oh gosh, they're gonna think I'm a racist, right? And so it stops us from actually being brave and speaking up. Another way that Brene Brown talks about how we BS is by creating false dichotomies. And I think we see this all the time. You know, if you're, you're thinking about the, um, I've been thinking about like the Colin Kaepernick and he's kneeling at the, um, you know, at the NFL games when the, or the, not Pledge of Allegiance, the national anthem is being sung. And I thought, you know, from one side, people, some people create dichotomies. They might say, you're either with those who kneel or else you're a racist. Or from the other side, you're either with those who remain standing or else you're anti-military and anti-police. And it's not fair. Those aren't fair dichotomies. We like to say you're either pro-gun or anti-gun. You're either liberal or you're conservative. You believe the Bible is entirely literal or else you're not a Christian. And nobody likes to be reduced to a side. And none of us likes it when people make assumptions about what we think or believe or feel. And we oftentimes, if we care about an issue, have much more complicated thoughts and feelings. You know, I know that sometimes being a gay female, I just, I feel like sometimes people assume that on all issues, I must be like way out over here on certain things. And I just want to say sometimes like, no, you know, I, I might actually surprise you about certain issues. You know, I'm not all one thing or another. And just like, you know, some of you might be like big supporters of gun rights. And you might say, yeah, but just because I support gun rights, it doesn't mean I'm like, you know, people might call you like a gun nut who's like a big NRA supporter. And you might be like, but that's not me. I support, I support gun control. And so when somebody comes at you and, and tries to put you in one of those boxes, Brene Brown, she gives a really, really helpful tool for how to address it. She says, first, she's like, I know it's hard but take a deep breath and muster some empathy and say something like, I hear that this topic is really important to you and it's a really hard topic, but are those really our only two options? 
You know, I don't like being placed in a category where I don't feel like I can fully explain how I feel. And I'm happy to talk to you more if you're willing to listen, and I would be happy to listen to you in return. And she said that actually creates a space for a conversation to take place. And if they can't handle it, they'll walk away. And that's fine. Your boundary can be like, if you can't respect that, then maybe we can't have that conversation. But that creates a ground where you can actually talk to one another and try and understand the nuance. Because when we deny nuance, that's where we're missing the real opportunities for dialogue. Right? We know the, the saying, birds of a feather flock together. And that's so true. I think we humans tend to like to hang out with people who are a lot like us. It feels better. It's easier. But even with people that we perceive to be a lot like us, no group of humans is exactly alike or feels exactly the same way about any set of issues. And so we can come to a place where we make assumptions about how other people feel in our groups. And when we hold a different view, Brene Brown tells us that instead of just going along with the conversation and acting like we don't feel differently to not create any waves, she says what you really should do to try and connect more is to find some courage this is what she calls braving the wilderness. Find some courage to self-define and state how you feel so long as the people that you're engaging with don't engage in dehumanizing or disrespectful ways of interacting with you. She's like, just, just say who you are and invite them into that conversation. You know, I, I know I have felt alone in groups before. I suspect probably all of us have felt alone in groups at some point in our lives. And she says this is what helps combat that feeling of loneliness in communities of people. She said when you realize that people might disagree with you on issues, but yet you're still fully known and accepted and heard in that group, and that helps your sense of belonging increase. You know, one of the things, I shouldn't say one of the things, it's one of the things that's, um, it's one of the many things that has attracted me to Jesus over the years but one of the things that he does not like to be pinned down into is a dichotomy. I mean, I actually had a hard time figuring out which thing to preach on this morning, like what story to talk about with Jesus. Because so I was like, I mean, he just, when people would come up to him, religious leaders, and try and have him make a choice, it's like a black and white choice between one thing or another, he did not like to be put in that box. You know, tell me, who's my neighbor? You know, give me a category of people. And he'd be like, mm, let me tell you a story, a story about the Good Samaritan. You know, he would try and like upend people's dichotomies. So the one we're going to look at this morning is from John 8. This is verses 1 to 11. And I thought I would invite you, if you're willing, just close your eyes and imagine this story. Because this is about 11 verses, it's a little bit longer, and imagine it as it's happening. So we're going to get into it pretty deeply. It says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. And the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the entire group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. 
And then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And so Jesus straightened up and he asked her, he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You can open your eyes. See what the teachers were saying to him. Right? He's saying, either tell us to stone this woman, which can we just name how, what, like kind of what an awful act that is? Tell us to stone this woman, or else you don't believe in the law of Moses, which would have been a very taboo thing for Jesus and his community. And that false dichotomy that they presented, Jesus was like, I'm not going to fit in that. He rejects it. So just the day before, Jesus had actually gone into the temple and he had ticked off all of the religious leaders. Right? He was there for a big festival and he created a huge commotion where he you know, like stood up in the middle of everybody and basically said, I am the temple. So everybody was like really ticked off at him. He'd made a really big commotion. And so here he is, the very next day, strolling into this same temple to teach. Right? He's going right back into the hornet's nest, and he very well could have been arrested right there on the spot by the temple guards. But he goes, and he sits, which is the, the position of a respected rabbi, and this big crowd starts to gather. Well, overnight, Jesus' opponents, they had had time to go and to strategize a plot to try and trap him because they are mad at him. And they wanted him to look bad in front of everyone. And we noticed they didn't actually make their move until after the crowd had gathered, right? That's when they brought out the woman. And in front of that crowd, they wanted to make it look like he either didn't understand the Jewish religious law or else that he disregarded it when it suited him. And either way, he shouldn't be considered a spiritual authority, much less the hope for Jewish Messiah. So presumably, that previous night, the religious leaders went and they arrested this woman who they claim was caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus in front of this crowd. And first off, I just think, you know, as someone who's a religious leader herself, how do you catch someone in the act of adultery? You know, like, what were they doing, and where were they lurking to try and do that, if that's what they found? Like, where do you find adultery on demand? And so there's a little piece of me that wonders, did they just go and round up some really vulnerable woman to play this part? Second, if she was indeed caught in adultery, adultery doesn't happen alone. Right? So where was the man? The Jewish law dictates that both of them be stoned. So if these teachers were really so zealous for the law, it seems that they themselves were disregarding a part of it, which tells us this wasn't actually really about preserving the law. It was about the public humiliation of Jesus. And third, I noticed they don't use the woman's name. Right? She's just a prop to them. They weren't concerned about her as a person. They weren't concerned about her humanity or her dignity. They were willing to just kill her. They were using her as a prop. Now, Kenneth Bailey, who's a historian, he said, they worked with the all-too-familiar combination of sex, a woman, sin, public humiliation, and a double standard. They didn't bring in a murderer or a thief, but they brought in a woman caught in adultery. And if there was a man, he was allowed to disappear. There was no evident effort to help her, only to use her and then kill her. Her public humiliation was irrelevant. 
Another important aspect of this story is the setting of it. You know, the temple area there was known to have unrest, especially during the high Jewish holidays, because the Romans occupied that same space where the Jews lived in Israel, and so sometimes there were different eruptions or riots that went on. And so Herod the Great, who was this Roman puppet master, he, had, he was the one who had actually rebuilt the Jewish temple. So he built the temple, and then right next to it, he built a giant Roman fortress. And if you've ever seen any pictures of the renderings of this, you can see that the fortress directly overlooks the courtyard of the temple. And so it was known that the Roman soldiers could do that. They had easy access into the courtyard. And Josephus, who was an early Jewish historian, he talked about how the uh, Roman soldiers would patrol the walkways and the different parts um, of the crowds during the major feast, right? So Roman soldiers are a real presence in this story as well. They could have seen, they would have been stationed to look right where Jesus was teaching. All right, so the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they're like, okay, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone people. What do you say? And they purposely don't use a hypothetical statement to trap him, right? They bring a real woman, an actual woman, in order to put him right there on the spot in front of the crowds that love him, as well as in front of the Roman military. And so in their minds, Jesus has two choices, right? He can either stone her, he could prove like, yeah, I know what the law says, I'm zealous enough for the law that I will go ahead and enforce this. And that would have caused a commotion and it would likely have gotten Jesus arrested because John's gospel tells us that the Romans would not let the Jews put people to death. So he could have done that, or else he could have said something like, okay, guys, you know that I know what the law says, but you know there's soldiers here. Why don't we just let her go for now? Let's not cause too much of a ruckus, which would look like he was compromising his own integrity and compromising the law for his own personal safety. So that would have hurt his authority. It would have made him look cowardly, right? So he either gets arrested or he gets discredited. And so the Pharisees think that they have him. But Jesus didn't choose either of those paths. He had to get a little bit creative in rejecting this particular dichotomy. So he bends down and he starts to write in the dirt. Now why? It seems like an odd thing to do. Well, in the Jewish law, the day after a big feast is considered a Sabbath. So, you know, in, in, in most Jewish um, communities, you don't work on a Saturday. Right? Our friends at Temple Beth Emmet, they take Saturday as a Sabbath day. The day after major festivals is also considered a Sabbath. And rabbis, even many today, consider writing to be work. So when I was studying in Jerusalem for a few weeks, I, I was out taking a walk and I ran into a Jewish guy and we struck up a conversation and he was orthodox, which means he was, he was following a very strict interpretation of the Jewish law even today. And you can take only so many steps or walk so many feet. They call it a Sabbath day walk without it being work, right? So he's out walking. We struck up a conversation and um, he, wanted me to give, he wanted to give me his number. And he was like, I can't write. I can't write. If anybody sees me writing, it would be terrible. So I wrote down his number. We eventually had coffee. That was an interesting conversation. But anyway, you can't write because it's work. However, writing in the dirt wasn't considered work by Jewish schools of thought in Jesus' day because it didn't create a permanent mark, right? So it's a little loophole. So in doing this, Jesus is telling everybody, he's like, okay, look, I know my stuff. I know what the law says, 
And I know that it says I can't write on a scroll, but I also understand that I am able to write in the dust. And I'm up on the modern interpretation and application of the law. Right? So they were wanting to discredit him and make him look dumb. But with this simple action, he's actually telling the crowd that he has a thorough knowledge of the Jewish law and of the developing oral tradition, which is called the Mishnah. And we have no idea what he wrote. I've heard, I don't know how many sermons based around what people thought that he wrote, which is fine, but I, we, we will never know. But what we do know is that when he stands up, he acknowledges that the judgment of the law says that the woman should be stoned. But then he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Right, do we see how brilliantly he turns this around? Right, they wanted him to make the decision to stone and potentially get arrested. But what he's doing is he's turning it back on them and he's asking them to put their name and their face on the judgment. He's asking all of them to take responsibility for participation in that woman's death. It's kind of like, maybe I'm willing to go to jail for this. Are you? Put your money where your mouth is. He's calling them out on their BS. Verse eight, again, it says, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So the elders leave and everybody follows. And as they leave, Jesus doesn't watch them, does he? He stoops back down and writes in the ground. He doesn't gloat, he doesn't stare, he doesn't revel in their loss, the way some of you Spartans may be doing. <laughs> he turns his face downward and he writes in the dirt to give them dignity, just as he gave dignity to that woman who had been brought before the crowd. He had turned all of their angry attention from her onto himself. And she's no longer their tool to be used, but she's now a human being who's protected by a relatively powerful rabbi. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. And I love this story. I've always loved this story. Because it shows Jesus like rejecting that BS categorization of like you're either this or you're this with tremendous civility and under the harshest of circumstances. Right? He doesn't ignore the Pharisees. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't get argumentative with them. And he refuses to participate in that game. But what he does is show that everyone is in the same human boat and no one can both know, or and the one that can both know and respect the Jewish law and interpret it in such a way that mercy is shown and mercy is extended. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Now being civil when we're calling out BS is crucial to protecting our connections, is what Brene Brown says. And we say, well, yeah, that's kind of obvious. But that is, if you're like me, oh, so very hard to do. Being civil when we're calling out BS is crucial to protecting our connections. So I'm just going to read you her definition of civility because she really sums up what we're aspiring to. It says, civility is claiming and caring for one's own identity, needs, and beliefs, right? being able to self-define and own who you are without degrading someone else's in the process. It's about disagreeing without disrespect. It's about seeking common ground seeking facts or seeking places where we can agree as a starting point for dialogue about differences. It's about listening past one's preconceptions, right? not making assumptions about how people feel about different topics. 
And it's about teaching other people to do the same, modeling that. Civility is the hard work of staying present, even with those with whom we have deep-rooted and fierce disagreements. And it's political in the sense that it's a necessary prerequisite for civic action, but it's political too in the sense that it's about negotiating our interpersonal power in such a way that everyone's voice is heard and no one is ignored. I would just say that the kind of church that we're trying to create is akin to what Brene Brown is talking about here in her book. We want a space where all of us practice holding our differences while still feeling like we can belong in the community. And we're far from perfect at doing this, but I would say that's a goal that we're aspiring to. You know, it's part of our third way. If you guys are familiar with our third way approach to church, it's we can agree to disagree, but we err on the side of inclusion with disputable matters. And that was honestly, that was Ken's way to try and forge a path through the dichotomy of LGBTQ relationships, but it also makes sense with other things as well. It's saying, I'm not gonna be boxed in to either I'm all this or all this. There's a middle way, we can hold the tension, but we have to err on the side of inclusion because we have to respect people's humanity, their dignity and their humanity. And so that's what we're trying to do, and that's hard work. That's the work of civility, that's the work of peacemaking. And Brene Brown would encourage us, those of us who are in this community, to bravely speak up when we hold differing opinions. You know, be able to speak up so that way you don't feel like you're alone in the crowd. And so long as the other people there are respecting your dignity and your humanity. And if they're not, then we have a different issue that we can address as a community. But I want you to feel like you can say who you are because that's the way we start to feel more fully known and less lonely in the process. All right. The end of each sermon, we tend to do a meditation, either silence or guided meditation. And I kept trying to come up with a guided meditation, and it just didn't quite feel right. So I, I thought maybe, maybe more of a time of just silence. I thought some of you are probably actually really good at this, like speaking truth to BS, not creating dichotomy. Some people are really gifted at being kind of peacemakers. And I thought if, you, if that's you, if you're like, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at this, Use this time to just ask God to bless that in you and to help you be able to teach that to others. And if you're like, you know, I could use a little bit of work on that. Maybe just extend your hands if you're willing. You can close your eyes and just maybe ask God to help, you know, send his Holy Spirit to help you and empower you to be more of that in areas of your life, whether it's with your family or with your boss or whatever. So we'll just take a couple minutes of silence. It doesn't have to be completely silent, babies. People make noise. And then I'm going to pray a blessing over us. Come, Holy Spirit. Make a little space for if Jesus is maybe talking to you about a, a particular relationship. 
just kind of open our hearts and say, do you have anything to say to me in this? Jesus, by your spirit, I ask that you would empower us to be peacemakers, that you would give us tools and equip us to do this hard work of creating bonds, of calling out BS, but doing it with civility. I ask for your incredible grace on this congregation, as well as on the moms who are joining us from all over the country. Lord, I ask that your grace would empower us to be this kind of community. I ask that you would give us space to hold differing opinions. I ask that you would allow us to have that kind of courage to be vulnerable and just say, I don't know, sometimes. I don't know. And I ask that you would give those on the other end the grace to just say, it's okay, I don't expect you to know everything. Holy Spirit, You were called the advocate and I ask that you would come and advocate for each one of us here, that you would fill us. That you would help us to experience the incredible love of a God who has accepted us. In the name of your son Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.